Welcome to the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review, where we cover all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Nicole Butler. Today's guest is Dr. Jeremy Mathis to talk about Arctic security. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be here. So just to begin, let's just discuss a little bit about your professional background. What has your path been? How did it lead you to becoming a professor at Georgetown? And how did you get into the field of environmental studies? Well, that's a great question because it's been a rather unusual past. I started out uh, with an engineering degree uh, working in the energy sector down on the Gulf of Mexico. And then I wanted to get a PhD in chemistry. And when I started looking around for chemistry programs, uh, I found one where the professor that I was going to work for had just had a major project funded by the National Science Foundation to work in the Arctic Ocean. And I was really fascinated by that because uh, it was uh, a place that I, I thought would be a great adventure. And so I, I signed up uh, and did it. And so as part of my, my PhD, uh, I spent uh, about a year of my life uh, living and working on uh, Coast Guard icebreakers up in the Arctic studying climate change and how carbon and the excess amount of carbon that we're putting into the environment from human activities uh, is causing all sorts of uh, changes uh, in the Arctic. So I I got to get in really at the, the beginning of what has been uh, a very rapid expansion of Arctic research over the last 20 years or so. Uh, and as I have worked through my career, uh, I've had the opportunity to take on, you know, more and more responsibility in helping the U.S. not only manage our Arctic space, but also start to think about environmental security as a whole. So as I've I've gone through the process, I, I started out as a faculty member at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and then I joined the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And uh, as part of that, uh, I ran NOAA's Arctic Research Program. And then I did uh, a tour at the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House. I did a tour on Capitol Hill working for Senator Lisa Murkowski, the senior senator from Alaska. Uh, and now I'm working uh, in the private sector uh, focused on environmental security and risk transfer. And six years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, to take a faculty position at Georgetown uh, and teach environmental security. So it's been a, an interesting journey, uh, but uh, my role at Georgetown has been something that I have I've really enjoyed uh, over the last six years. Okay, so you've had a very busy schedule and an exciting life so far. I would say that just your whole experience shows how cross-disciplinary the response in the Arctic has to be, and um, you sort of exemplify that in a way. As you've noted, a major developing area in environmental security is the Arctic. So do you mind just explaining a bit about how it is a unique, unique case study? And when it comes to international security, how does security work in a region where there are competing sovereignty claims? Absolutely. So we'll start sort of first and foremost with 
why we're so interested in the Arctic right now. And it's really because the Arctic is changing faster than anywhere else on the planet because of climate change. And that's from a process called Arctic amplification. And it's pretty simple. If you think about the Arctic, uh, you think about very white surfaces, whether it's sea ice or whether it's snow cover on land or glaciers in the mountains. We think about the Arctic as a, as a winter landscape where everything is just white. And white surfaces reflect most of the sun's energy back into space, which is what has traditionally kept the Arctic very cool all year long. But over the past few decades, as planetary warming has started to increase, it began to cause melting of that ice in the Arctic. So the sea ice got displaced by dark ocean water, snow on land melted, and that exposed dark soil. And then the glaciers and the mountains started melting, which, which exposed dark rock. So rather than the Arctic being this highly reflective surface, it's now darkening. And that means it's absorbing more and more of the sun's energy as it comes in from outer space. So the Arctic has turned into an air conditioner for the entire planet into being what we call a heat sink. It's a place where heat is being trapped and stored, and that's causing this runaway effect. The more snow and ice melts, the more heat is absorbed, the more heat is absorbed, the more snow and ice melts, and on and on and on. And that has, has created this process now where the Arctic is warming up about three times faster than the rest of the planet. And that has huge implications for everything from shipping, uh, that we have this new ocean that's opening up now that's available for commercial ship traffic, we have greater access to natural resources like oil and gas and minerals. We have sovereignty claims that are becoming more of an issue because of that. The countries that circle the Arctic, with the U.S. being one of them, uh, now have to think very carefully about their territorial claims and how resource extraction and resource development will begin to occur. And probably most importantly, we can't forget about the 3 million or so people, most of them native Arctic indigenous people that live in a place that is undergoing this extraordinarily rapid climate change that's causing all kinds of problems for them from coastal erosion and loss of their communities to increase wildfires, to increase disease vectors, to even the intrusion of people coming into the Arctic for the first time. We're seeing things like cruise ships start to start to transit the Arctic. And a lot of the native communities that, that are along the Arctic coastline uh, are now being inundated with Arctic adventurers uh, that are coming up from all over the world. And we're, we just haven't done uh, the preparation of the things that we need to do to prepare for the extraordinary explosion of economic activity that, that is now occurring because the Arctic is opening up. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. I um I actually did a trip with my family to the Antarctic and it, different situations as you, you don't have direct contact with the indigenous populations in the Antarctic as you do in the Arctic, but I was fascinated by 
the due diligence and the process that was taken, we were on a very small research ship and that you had to wash your boots in three different solutions and nothing could be brought on or brought off the continent. And that definitely got me thinking with my interest in the Arctic of how important it's going to be to ensure that there's due diligence moving forward with increasing traffic of tourists. Do you think it's common in specifically climate change situations, but just in general of as like the world evolves, do you think it's common that the people are typically forgotten about in response to issues like this? Yes, I absolutely do. And and we see this not just in the Arctic, but all around the world, uh, where the folks that have contributed the least to the planetary warming that we're experiencing are being impacted the most. And the Antarctica example is a good one, because we actually have the Antarctic Treaty uh, that prohibits uh, commercial development uh, in Antarctica. It limits the number of people that can visit Antarctica. There, there's all kinds of regulations and restrictions that the nations of the world got together uh, back in the 1960s and 1970s and developed this treaty and these protocols to protect the pristine environment that was Antarctica. That does not exist for the Arctic. There is no broad Arctic treaty that governs behavior or uh, development of the Arctic. It is very much like the Wild West in that everyone is just rushing up there uh, to exploit the resources in, in the fastest way possible. And in a lot of cases, it is the indigenous people uh, that are are getting hurt along the way. Right. I mean, that's a shame at the end of the day. And thankfully, people such as yourself are bringing attention to that. And hopefully it's considered as we move forward. Um, in regard to kind of the international response and treaties and such, you recently wrote an article for Georgetown's Institute for the Study of Diplomacy. Uh, and you were talking about suggesting a governance body body alternative to the Arctic Council. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you think this alternative body might look like and what its benefits would be and if it would kind of establish treaties or policies that are lacking in the Arctic right now? Absolutely. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background in that the Arctic Council was really founded to ensure scientific cooperation in the Arctic. Because back before the year 2000, that's really all that was going on in the Arctic was was science. And the Arctic Council was a great forum for scientists to collaborate, but it was not empowered or resourced or, or really structured in a way that allowed it to deal with economic development issues or security issues or questions around sovereignty. The Arctic Council was uh, a convening body that could bring scientists together. And it was made up of the eight Arctic states that have a a presence in the Arctic uh, as permanent members. And then over the years, the Arctic Council has expanded to include a number of observer states, countries that don't have a territorial footprint in the Arctic, but are interested in what's happening in the Arctic. And this is everything from China to India to a lot of countries in Western Europe, even Singapore uh, is an observer member of the Arctic Council. And what that's done is, is it's made it a little difficult 
uh, to actually deal with the decision-making that needs to happen in the Arctic today as it relates to economic development and the security issues that we're facing. So the Arctic Council still has a, a big important role to play uh, as a convening body for things like science and conservation uh, and thinking about how we can protect the Arctic. But at the same time, we need uh, a new intergovernmental body that is structured and empowered and resourced uh, to actually deal with the challenges that we face today. So I've proposed something that I'm calling an A8, uh, similar to the G7, uh, structure uh, that we have with the, the largest seven economies of the world that get together uh, and make decisions on, on things like security and trade and economic development. I think we need a similar structure in the Arctic that's empowered uh, at the appropriate levels, particularly in the U.S. government, so that the people that are going uh, and representing the U.S. at an A8 meeting uh, are very senior members of the government uh, and that they are empowered to uh, sign agreements and you know, come up with new arrangements that will allow us to keep the Arctic safe and secure going forward. And the reason I, I think we need this is it, it was really highlighted. Uh, Russia is obviously a member of the Arctic Council, uh, and Russia was the chair of the Arctic Council uh, when it invaded Ukraine last year. Well, immediately, uh, the, the non-Russian members of the Arctic Council uh, immediately suspended their participation in the Arctic Council process because Russia was chair. Uh, and so the Arctic Council went dormant for almost a year uh, until the, the chairmanship changed over uh, to Norway. And now the process is, is, is sort of slowly getting back uh, up to speed, but Russia is, is not being really allowed to participate. So the it, it just exposed the underlying weakness that is the Arctic Council process uh, to not allow the, the right forum or, or the right sort of structure to deal with the, the security challenges that we face. So I, I think the solution to this is, is for the U.S. to lead. Uh, we have to not cede uh, Arctic leadership to countries like Russia. Uh, we have to work with our allies and our partners like Canada and Iceland uh, and Denmark uh, and really think about those uh, issues that are in the national security interest of the United States or in the economic interest of the United States and, and really start to demonstrate that the U.S. takes the Arctic seriously and that we are going to, to have our government pay attention to it in a way that it deserves. Absolutely. It seems like the Arctic is potentially an excellent opportunity to foster more cooperation on the international grounds. Um, and for the U.S. to be a leader in that would be wonderful to see. In your opinion so far, has Arctic security been characterized by cooperation or has it been more conflict than anything? I think it has been characterized by cooperation, especially now uh, that that Finland and, and Sweden are joining NATO. It means that all of the Arctic nations that aren't Russia uh, are going to be members of NATO. So I, I think, obviously, cooperation 
between NATO members is, is going to remain high. But I, I think we see that Russia is continuing to militarize their Arctic. Uh, they're continuing to invest and, and put resources into building out new capacity in the Arctic. And it's always better to sort of think about ways to cooperate rather than trying to deal with a conflict or a, an emerging conflict situation later on. So I think it, it would be in everyone's best interest uh, in the Arctic to figure out ways to engage with Russia, uh, to work with our partners and, and continue to look for opportunities to, to cooperate. And, and that's not uh, unlike the history of the Arctic. When I was at NOAA, uh, I ran a program that was a joint U.S.-Russia scientific expedition uh, into the Arctic that we were able to do every year. We had uh, monitoring stations uh, in northern Russia to, to make atmospheric measurements. So we had uh, a great foundation that would have allowed us to build even greater cooperation in the Arctic. Unfortunately, the events of the last few years have brought all of that to a halt. So if we want a safe, secure, stable Arctic, we need to do two things. We need to continue to bolster our assets and our planning and our capabilities in the region as the U.S. and, and our NATO partners. But we also need to, to start thinking about ways to re-engage with Russia in the Arctic so that we can, we can avoid tension uh, and avoid any potential conflict that, that could emerge. You make a good point. I don't think there is typically a connection made between the war in Ukraine and its effects on Arctic security in the future. They seem quite removed from each other, but it would be to the U.S.'s benefits and many other countries to learn how to be disengaged in some regards, but engaged in others and kind of be able to compartmentalize a little bit because in terms of the Arctic security, you can't just stop and wait until everything else has been sorted in a different conflict to move forward. We just don't have time for that with climate change. You mentioned that you've worked within the U.S. government and have seen their response to Arctic security in the U.S. How would you characterize the U.S.'s role in the Arctic now, and have you seen a shift over time in their perspective for the good or for the bad? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I will say we have uh, an inconsistent approach to the Arctic when it comes to the U.S. Um, it it has always been a place where it's it's been hard to get attention. Uh, but when we do, we seem to sort of do it in 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 uh, a very uneven way. And so in, in the last year, of President Obama's administration, uh, we hosted a big summit at the White House, the first ever Arctic science ministerial, where we invited uh, representative science ministers uh, from more than 30 countries to come to the White House and talk about uh, the things that we wanted to accomplish in the Arctic. And so it, it created a, a, a great foundation that we really felt like there was going to be a lot of momentum uh, to move us forward in collaborating in the Arctic. And we, we got commitments from U.S. agencies and uh, priorities set uh, for what the U.S. would do in the Arctic. And then President Trump got elected and all of that came to a halt. And now we've gone back into a, a President Biden administration where We've been slow to sort of rebuild uh, our momentum 
towards doing big things in the Arctic. And I, I just think we we need to be uh, more proactive uh, in that thinking, and we need to look for ways that the Arctic is is not only going to bolster our our national economic security, but our national security in general, and get those pieces of uh, the U.S. government involved. The National Security Council, the Council of Economic Advisors, the Department of Defense. Uh, we need comprehensive uh, whole of government uh, approaches to dealing with the Arctic. Right now, we have each sort of agency that has a presence or some responsibility in the Arctic writing their own strategic plans uh, that are generally very high level and don't have a lot of detail. And then there's not a lot of, of synergy or intercompatibility between those strategic plans. So I would love to see this get picked up by the White House again uh, and, and really see you know, a, a big organizational structure built around doing something in the Arctic and, and really establishing the U.S. as uh, the lead in this space. And we, we've done some some good things along the way. We do have uh, the first uh, Arctic ambassador has been nominated, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Mike Spraga, uh, but that's been sitting in the Senate confirmation process for a year. Uh, so while you know Mike is nominated uh, and has been able to go around uh, and have conversations with other Arctic leaders, uh, he's not confirmed into the position yet. So those are the kind of things that I, I think we could just do immediately that would bolster not only U.S. credibility in the Arctic, but would really start to work through some of these big challenges that we face. Yeah. So it sounds like we really just need action and to have action having an ambassador is the first step because that's someone who can foster that diplomacy. I mean, that falls into the regard of having creative international responses to Arctic security concerns, which I think will be key for security professionals and students as well to consider if we want to take this problem seriously and actually have a more proactive response to the growing problem versus having a reactionary. And because you're dealing with climate change, sometimes that can be too late if you're not proactive enough. So considering international responses, COP28 is just wrapping up, which is the 2023 United Nations Climate Change Conference. How do you think this year's conference will influence Arctic security? Do you think even just conferences alone like this are beneficial for fostering cooperation and action in the Arctic? Are they necessary? What's what's your perspective? So that's a great question. I, I think, uh, you know, after this COP, it's time for everybody to take a step back and really evaluate just how successful this COP process has been. Uh, and has it actually led us to uh, the outcomes that we want? I think it's done some good things. And I think it has been lacking in a lot of other ways. And it goes back to the point I made a few minutes ago. We need to stop talking about doing things and we need to start doing things. Uh, and that that is no more uh, important or there's nowhere where that's more important than in the Arctic because of the, the pace of change. And obviously one of the big things that is going to develop in the Arctic is oil and gas. There are tremendous oil and gas reserves in the Arctic. Russia is already exploiting them uh, to their fullest extent. But as we think about global climate change and we think about the impact of the production of all that oil and gas, 
especially in a place like the Arctic, uh, we really need to start looking at some binding agreements that could go in place so that at least for the U.S. position, our Arctic policy isn't going through the extraordinary swings of one presidential administration to the other, because the international community is, is having trouble figuring out what the U.S. priorities are. Uh, and, in, and until we actually set out a set of priorities and, and move towards implementing them, there, there's going to be con to continue to be uh, great uncertainty uh, in the Arctic. And because of that, I, I think we've got the opportunity to have event-level disasters, an oil spill or a, a shipping accident somewhere, to global-level disasters, which is the uh, uninhibited development of oil and gas in the Arctic that would just exacerbate the climate change problem that we're already facing. So my my hope is that over the next couple of years, we're able to turn all those great uh, talking points and rhetoric that we hear coming out of COP into actionable things that are that are making a difference. I completely agree with you. I actually just recently wrote um, a commentary on the UN Water Convention, and that that was my takeaway from my research as well as I was specifically referring to water security in this regard, which is part of Arctic security. But my big takeaway is that we're halfway through the water agenda and we're still just talking and we're we're not actually seeing too much action. And I, I think that is room for improvement within these international conferences to begin with. Absolutely, we need to have the discussions, but then the discussions need to be bolstered by action as well. So I think you you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, just in general, considering where we're at right now, what are the biggest threats to Arctic security if the U.S. is going to develop a policy on this that is not going to swing back and forth um, between administrations? What, what do you think the biggest threats are and what should the focus be? So I, I see two uh, threats when it comes to uh, the Arctic right now. And the first one is not matching Russia's commitment to the Arctic. President Putin has been very successful at creating a nationalistic identity in Russia for the Russian people that that the Arctic is is theirs uh, and that that they should uh, continue to have supremacy in the Arctic. And I think like we've seen in a lot of other places when it comes to to President Putin's policies and strategies, um, not pushing back on those things uh, invites actions that we may not see in our best interest. So what I would like to see the U.S. do uh, is put out uh, strategic plans uh, related to capacity building in the Arctic, whether it's new icebreakers for the Coast Guard or whether it's a greater presence of, of unmanned uh, ocean and aerial vehicles that can operate in the Arctic or bolstering our, our satellite capabilities in the Arctic or our telecommunications ability in the Arctic, just demonstrate uh, that the U.S. sees the Arctic as a priority area. Uh, we don't have to militarize it, uh, but we do have to resource it, and we have to demonstrate that uh, we are going to be willing to, uh, to spend money uh, building our capabilities in the Arctic. 
The second security challenge I see uh, is a food security challenge. Uh, because uh, the Arctic is changing so quickly, uh, the U.S. relies on the Bering Sea, uh, which is that big body of water between Alaska and Russia, uh, as, as a fishery, one of the most important fisheries in the world. And as the environment changes uh, and that fishery changes, uh, the U.S. certainly needs to think about uh, the implications of those changes on uh, our food supply uh, and the economic security of, of not just the state of Alaska, uh, but as the U.S. and, and global food security issue uh, going forward. That's really fascinating. I think those are good points. What do you think are some major concerns then in terms of environmental threats? My nightmare scenario uh, is an oil spill in the Arctic as we see Russia uh, begin to export more and more oil uh, out of the Arctic. Uh, it's a matter of uh, when, not if, there's going to be uh, an oil spill. And oil in the Arctic is a disaster because it's, it's virtually impossible to get oil out of the water if sea ice is present, if there's, if there's ice around. You can't use the traditional skimming technologies that are available in a place like the Gulf of Mexico, where you could skim large portions of the oil off the surface. That's just not possible when uh, ice is present, which means you either have to start pumping a bunch of chemical dispersants or you have to burn the oil, uh, and that causes all kinds of problems in itself. So I don't think we have the appropriate response capability yet to deal with a major oil spill uh, in the Arctic. If, if we think about for the US, for instance, we don't have uh, a permanent presence uh, of the Coast Guard in the Arctic. We have largely one functional icebreaker uh, at this point, and it's based in Seattle. Uh, and so if there were to be an oil spill off the northern coast of Alaska somewhere, uh, under a best case scenario, it would take the, the icebreaker Healy four or five days uh, to just get up there and and on site. In four or five days, you can imagine how vast an area could be covered uh, by a significant oil spill. And then the, the environmental implications of that could be uh, extraordinarily bad. So that's, that's my nightmare scenario is uh, an environmental contamination uh, from an oil spill. But there's also other ones. I, I mentioned cruise ships going up into the Arctic. We're seeing cruise ships that are taking you know, upwards of 1,000 people uh, into the Arctic, and there's no search and rescue capabilities to speak of. In the event of, of uh, a grounding or a fire on board the ship or, or some sort of emergency, it's, again, another issue of, of lack of capability in order to be able to respond. So before... The, the commercial development takes off too fast, I think we absolutely have to think about the policies and, and regulatory frameworks that we need to put in place that would help us deal with the, the emergencies that we know are going to occur. Yeah, absolutely. I have spent a little bit of time in what's considered the Canadian Arctic, uh, doing some backcountry camping. And your comment about emergency response is what my takeaway was as well, that um, I had a Parks Canada briefing before I was on this trip. And the biggest note was that do whatever you can to not get injured because it is a minimum of three days before anybody can 
access you just because of the remoteness of the Arctic. And I think that's a huge consideration that often is probably not considered at the forefront when we're looking into tourism. Do you think tourism at this point is inevitable? Uh, I think tourism is going to explode in the Arctic uh, and not just from Arctic nations. Uh, like I said, we we see uh, you know international cruise ships that are sailing up there now. China uh, is encouraging tourism to the Arctic. Uh, they would like for their citizens uh, to start uh, going up and and traveling to the Arctic and being more present in the Arctic. So it it's it is going to happen. Uh, what we have to make sure is that as it happens, we're protecting those vulnerable populations uh, because a lot of the Arctic villages uh, and communities up there are a few hundred people at the most. And so you can imagine what it looks like uh, if a hundred people, a hundred tourists show up on an Alaskan Airlines flight into a community that has one small hotel, one small grocery store, and one small restaurant. Uh, it, it's just, it, it becomes uh, completely disruptive to the local population, uh, not to mention uh, the the environmental impacts uh, that that putting that many people into a place where we don't have appropriate regulation and appropriate guidelines for dealing with them uh, could have on on a very sensitive ecosystem and environment that's already under a lot of stress from the climate change that's happening. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely something to be considered moving forward. And hopefully, again, it's a it's a proactive response and not retroactive on a totally different topic. I'm just curious, given your expertise, do you think the Antarctic will be another region to watch for in the future for developing international conflict? I mean, I know you discussed that there is um, a treaty in terms of protecting the ecosystems and limiting tourism. But I mean, what we're seeing with the Arctic now and how it's exploding, do you think that might be a future for the Antarctic as well? I, I do. I, I would be much more cautious about that because for one thing, first and foremost, is the Antarctic Treaty is, is going to prevent a lot of that development from, from happening. Uh, and also, there's not this sense that the Antarctic is opening in the same way that the Arctic is. We, we are going to have a whole new ocean uh, to transit through in the Arctic. Antarctica is a continent. It's covered by glaciers. It's covered by snow. We do think that there are, or you know, oil and gas and mineral deposits in Antarctica. But the the Antarctic Treaty prevents full stop uh, any of that development from occurring. So I think as you know, we think about things like powering electric vehicles and and the rare earth minerals we need for for batteries for electric vehicles. We're going to have to look around the world. Uh, and and think of new creative places where where we can get those resources. But I, I think Antarctica, because we have the treaty and and because there has been such broad international support for so long in protecting and conserving Antarctica, I don't think you know at least in the next few decades we're we're going to see uh, the resource rush there like we are going to see in the Arctic. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. How does the scientific community, I mean, you come from a science background, is the science community, are they fully part of the discussions? I, I would say it is positive. I'm one of, you know, a, an example of somebody who has started out in the science 
realm and moved over into the policy realm. And I think we need more of that. We need more Arctic scientists to make the transition into Arctic policy, because so much of the decisions or so many of the decisions that we have to make in the Arctic do need to be based on the science that's being generated. And so I, I think that there's a real opportunity uh, to, to bring more scientists into the policy discussion. But to be honest, it's why I've been teaching the Arctic security class at Georgetown for the last six years is because I want to take those policymakers that are coming um, either from government or from active duty military or from the private sector and get them thinking about the Arctic and, and the role that it's going to play in the decisions that they're making. So I, I'm always amazed at, you know, at the beginning of the semester when I asked the students why they took Arctic security. And, and nearly everyone says, well, it sounded interesting. I don't really know anything about it. And by the end of the semester, those same people are saying, I can't believe how many things that I do in my daily life are going to be impacted by the changes that are happening in the Arctic, and I didn't know about it. And so that's where I, I think we've still got a lot of work to do on education and, and outreach and, and making sure everyone fully understands the implications of what's going on. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. I mean, it must be valuable for you to just see how perspective shift just within one semester, but also just your trajectory of your career. It's really positive that there is space to connect the government and the science side. Um, I know your course is highly regarded and there's a long waiting list of people trying to get on it, myself included, and hopefully that happens at some point in the future. But this has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us today. I think Myself and definitely our listeners have a lot to take away and consider from our conversations regarding creative responses and really taking security in the Arctic seriously and being proactive to not only Arctic security, but future international environmental conflicts as well. Well, thank you, Nicole. And and you all are what gives me hope uh, that that we do have a path forward with this. I I have a great deal of confidence in in you and and your colleagues in uh, the the security studies program at Georgetown and and throughout Georgetown uh, for uh, your ability to come in and and solve a lot of these problems uh, that that are going to be so present in our lives going forward. So it's been a pleasure chatting with you, and uh, I hope to see you in class soon. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are the views of the participants alone and do not represent the views or opinions of Georgetown University, the Precision Guided Podcast, or any other agency. Thank you for listening to the Precision Guided Podcast. Follow the Georgetown Security Studies Review on social media to stay up to date on the latest Precision Guided Podcast episodes and GSSR content. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at georgetownsecuritystudiesreview.org.